When he turned his back from shoulder to shoulder, it looked like as wide as the tailgate of a truck. And this darkness, literal darkness, just came like all over, just, just all over me except where I was standing. This thing let out the most blood-curdling, mind-blowing, spine-tingling scream that you've ever heard in your life, and it cut through me like a knife. And I knew that they were going to take me. I just knew it. And then the next thing I can remember is being levitated. Well, when I look in there, uh, I see two big eyes staring back at me. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Bump Podcast, a place for the believers of the unexplained, monsters, and paranormal. Join us, and we'll go face-to-face with what goes bump in the night. I got another great episode for you today. This week, we're bringing on the one and only Derek Olson, the man behind Megalithic Marvels. Um, not sure where this conversation might go necessarily, because you, as you know, I like to let the guests, you know, take the lead on these things. But I'm sure it's going to be a fantastic episode. I've been watching his stuff um, all week in preparation. I've been listening to his podcast that he's he's done on other shows, and there's just there's so much content that I know we won't be able to get into, you know, any hardly anything. Or we'll scratch the surface. But I definitely have questions. And uh, I think he's the man to answer them. And I might even ask questions about this giant stone head right beside me. Maybe he's seen something similar somewhere else. This one came out of Cleveland. But we'll see. All right, let's go ahead and bring him on. Here we go. Well, I'm excited to be on the Bump podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to uh, what we're going to talk about in the next hour or so. Hey, thanks again for coming on, Derek. Um, I know a couple months ago we had to cancel and reschedule. That's probably my fault over something, but I'm I'm very excited to have you on. Um, a guest of your caliber, few and far between on this show. Um, not to knock my other guests, it's just that you are what I would call like a pro- a professional in your field you know what i mean this isn't oh boy. Just, it, this isn't um i'm not trying to stroke your ego it's just this episode isn't like my my usual episodes where i have somebody come on that has an encounter or an experience gotcha. um, but in particular the the stuff that you cover um there's there's not that many people that I'll, i would say have the knowledge that you have on these things well, I appreciate that. I hope I can live up to that uh, billing and uh, looking forward to what we're going to talk about. Absolutely, man. Um, well, before we started recording, you know, we talked for just a second and uh, you mentioned ancient technology. Um, I watched a lot of your videos on YouTube. Uh, I've been watching them all week trying to, you know, that way, if you mention certain sites, I can get a picture in my head of, as to what you're talking about or where. Um, yeah, these structures, they are, uh, megalithic is the perfect word for it, but they're enormous. And it's just, 
it's confusing to me at, at how they even get started doing something like this out of granite or whatever else. So if you could uh, give me a little insight as to yeah. where you've landed, that'd be great. Yeah. I mean, I've just, I've always been into ancient uh, history and um, cultures and yeah, I kind of tell the story that like in, it's probably around 2012, I was doing an internet image search for like ancient structures, I think. And uh, I see something pop up on the screen I'd never seen before. I'd never seen it in any history books. I had never seen it on National Geographic. And so I was sitting there with my mind blown in 2012. And um, what I saw was a photo of the megalithic walls at Sacsayhuaman, Peru. And if you Google this, it's kind of spelled weird, S-A-C something, Sacsayhuaman. You're going to see um, the definition of lost ancient technology. You're going to see, uh, I believe there are 100 plus ton blocks. Um, and what you're seeing doesn't even account for the 12 feet that go underground. Um, mortarless blocks that are massive in scale, yet so intricate at the same time where you can't fit a hair through the mortarless joints, right? And so this is a definition of what I call a megalithic marvel. And, and we find these all over the world, whether it's Peru, uh, they're, they're on Easter Island as well. There's still some megalithic walls there that look just like those in Peru. There's the megaliths of Egypt. Um, we see megaliths uh, in Italy, Greece, um, Turkey, to name a few. And so these truly megalithic uh, marvels, you know, I like to say they whisper whisper to us from the prehistoric past in that they're still here and they still confuse us. And um, I believe they were constructed with some kind of lost ancient technology that confounds today's experts and it really defies our greatest modern engineering. Yeah, there was um, there was a Japanese company in the 1970s. I think it was called the, the Nippon Corporation, who set out to prove to the world that they could replicate how the Great Pyramid of Giza was built. And so, again, they were only building a small scale of this. Right. And they were just trying to take you know some multi-ton limestone blocks, and stack them in a triangle. So they're not even accounting for the machine-like nature of the great pyramid this thing is like a machine inside with passageways and chambers and so they were going to do it and they were going to prove to the world this is how the ancient egyptians built the pyramids using ropes and pulleys like the mainstream tells us right with a huge workforce sleds ramps and they couldn't do it halfway through um, they gave up and they had to bring in their earth movers and cranes just to stack the blocks uh, in, in a small scale of the Great Pyramid. Yeah. So again, I like to share that to kind of give people um, scale for when we're talking about lost ancient technology. Uh, we've tried today to redo this and, and we just can't. So um, I love this topic and there's so many different examples more we can get into whether it's Egypt or Peru, but I'll start with that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, just that. I mean, just that. The, the, but the pyramids, that blows my mind. And, and I watched a video. You were talking to somebody. I don't remember what his name was. But you guys got onto something that 
it it completely changed my view. I was always under the impression, like the rest of the world, I guess, that these pyramids were burial chambers, you know? But right. then I watched this video, and you guys are making some pretty uh, amazing claims that these shafts are more <laughs> like maintenance shafts or something to hold liquid. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's mind-blowing to consider. Yeah, and I, I grew up, um, I think, probably believing that, too, based on just what I was told, again, in history class and textbooks, that, you know, Great Pyramids are about... 5,000 years old max, and they were built as tombs for the pharaonic dynasties. Um, it's important to point out that um, from when I say pharaonic dynasties, that is, um, these are, are what we would call the dynastic Egyptians who emerged in Egypt around 3000 BC. Okay. So again, these guys are about 5,000 years old and Egyptologist, um, the experts, so-called experts of studying ancient Egypt, say again that these dynastic Egyptians or these pharaonic dynasties um, again built these as tombs and um, but again here's the key unlike the confirmed Egyptian tombs in the Valley of the Kings which is like 11 hours away by car um, there's no hieroglyphs no mummies no Egyptian artwork depictions ever found in these bare megalithic walls so it's completely different and then when you're inside the great pyramid like i was this last uh february on our egypt tour i mean you're you come away realizing this thing is doesn't even seem functional to be climbing through right it's um i i, I like to share with people that you're going down 300 foot steep passageways and you're doubled over right so you can't stand up going down because these are not tall you're going down these what it feels like a maintenance shaft, like you said, yeah. doubled over, bent over, going down a steep stairway. These are modern day stairs they've put in, and then you're grabbing onto the wooden rails on each side. How would the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC traversed through this pyramid with a uh, funeral procession, right? right. Carrying multi ton sarcophaguses, heavy statues, there's no way they could have done it. Got in and out of this thing. And so that that alone makes you go, okay, what is going on here? And then when you consider the geology of the stone that makes up the Great Pyramid, for example, you've got limestone. Then you've got um, rose granite, which has got all this quartzite in it, which activates stuff. Mm. When you really study the geology and then you combine water, there's a lot of evidence again that this thing was functioning as some kind of energetic device. And in the whole tomb thing, the key word is repurposing. Yes, I do believe the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC buried some of their pharaohs in these, <laughs> but it was just thousands upon thousands of years later after the thing was first created, right? Right. Uh, because to these dynastic Egyptian pharaohs this was the greatest structure on earth the greatest place to be buried to them it was a ticket to the afterlife to go traverse the cosmos and so um and back then in 3000 bc time the pyramids probably still had a lot more energy that they were emanating and so the dynasties um 
or controlling it for themselves, if that makes sense. So there's so much going on with the pyramids and the, um, a lot of people don't realize there's megalithic temples in Egypt with a complete different functionality of the pyramids where the pyramid seems like it's this um, almost generator type device. You've got these megalithic temples. You could Google Valley Temple. It's there in Giza right by the Sphinx. This thing is made of the same massive multi-ton rose granite blocks, but mm. the functionality is different where the temple appears like it was made to be a temple for ancient beings to come through. And when you study the oral traditions of the ancient Egyptians and like talk to our tour guide, Muhammad Ibrahim, who's an Egyptologist, one of the only Egyptologists to break with the mainstream and say that he believes a pre-dynastic civilization built this. Um, he's, he'll tell you that this was a, these temples were created for healing and fertility purposes. So again, you get back to the geology. Um, these ancients knew how to tap into the, uh, I don't want to sound new age, but the power of the earth, the yeah. magnetics. And, um, and even up until a couple hundred years ago, Egyptians would go there for fertility and healing and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I know I've said a lot. Yeah, but yeah, it was perfect. Um, it, it basically answered every question I could have had as far as how that goes. Um, so these pyramids were there long before the pharaohs. And they just kind of claimed it as their own, repurposed it. But these pyramids were built to be like gigantic batteries, like power plants. Yeah, you know, and there's so many other researchers that have, I mean, written books for years on this subject. Um, I got to give Chris Dunn a shout. He wrote a book called The Giza Power Plant. I don't personally like that phrase because it, I think when we hear the word power plant, we think of just some kind of, we, we think of our version of power, right? right? This was so much more high tech than our, 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 the, the stuff we use today to blow stuff up, like the pyramids were holistic energy devices, I believe. And so what I mean by that is they were um, able to connect with the earth and um, produce energy for this ancient civilization. And so there's a lot of evidence you might have heard um, talking about there was probably an ancient global power grid system. And there's a lot of research that the Giza Great Pyramid of Giza represents the center of this grid system. And magnetic ley lines have all kinds of um, vibrational qualities to them. Again, that seem to be able to channel energy for so many different purposes. And um, so, so the Great Pyramid is a stunning work of artistic achievement, really the work of masters of architecture um, when you consider inside the Great Pyramid, there's the so-called King's Chamber. Okay. Again, that's a uh, mainstream phrase. They're trying to tell us, well, this is where the king was buried. And then the queen was buried in this queen's chamber. Right. Inside these, it's all about acoustic resonance. Um, and so you can, you can sing at certain keys. And so, again, that just backs up the vibrational power of this thing. Yes. But inside this king's chamber are 
at least 70 ton um, rose granite blocks raised more than 300 feet above ground. So you got to go, again, the mathematics, the precision, if you make any tiny mistake at the base, um, by the time you get to the top here where these blocks are, you are screwed, right? Yeah, man. Um, but, and nobody can explain how they did it. And so um, there was a cool article that came out um, several years ago. It's called the Journal of Applied Physics. And they released a study based off the research of a scientist from Germany and Russia. And they concluded that the Great Pyramid can concentrate electromagnetic energy in its internal chambers under its base. And this is important to point out so people don't just think I'm throwing stuff out into the air. Right. This means we actually have scientific data that supports you know, this theory that the Great Pyramid was a technology structure of some kind. Wow. Um, of course, this was never covered by Fox or CNN or National Geographic. But again, the Applied Journal of Applied Physics, pretty big uh, publication, released that study. So that's kind of cool um, that we're getting some people coming forward um, with evidence uh, to back this up. You know, when, when you talk about this, how it's a, a holistic energy and, you know, it goes off the resonance and I'm, I'm hearing there's a, it, it sounds kind of reminiscent of Tesla, right? With the, with the free energy that he, he, I guess, knew a way to tap into it, but it's, it's there, right? Would that be closer? No, you're right on. I mean, Tesla himself said, if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, he said, you have to think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Wow. Um, so, and we know if you, not that I'm an expert on Tesla, but I know enough, if you, if you kind of do some research, you're going to, we're all going to find out. We already know that his stuff was confiscated the moment he died and yep. put under lock and key and covered up and controlled. And that got clearly tapped into, um, some, some crazy, um, technology. I believe he tapped into this lost technology, uh, I would call it golden age technology or pre-flood antediluvian technology that we've lost for mainstream today. He he somehow tapped into that, and um, and there's actually you know there's some cool stuff coming out. I don't know if you heard about this Joe Rogan show where he had Randall Carlson on and um, uh, who was it? Graham Hancock. I, I didn't I didn't listen to it, but I, I saw that he was on there. Yeah, they were talking about Randall Carlson kind of dropped some bombs talking about um, how there's a reemergence of lost ancient technology. This got a lot of people excited. I did a little qu quick video on it. Um, so in the interview, they're just talking about ancient Egypt and stuff. And Randall kind of goes off on a, a rabbit trail. He's a Randall Carlson's a geologist. Okay. Um, if people don't know. And he works with Graham Hancock a lot talking about... Um, evidence of ancient technology and stuff, right? So they're talking about this stuff and Randall basically says, um, we're getting close to rediscovering some of this lost technology and, and Joe Rogan's kind of like, okay, wait, stop, tell us more. And um, he goes on to say that um, there's people he knows of 
that he's he's talked to that are working, you know, they've been working for secret in decades on rediscovering some of these technologies and that um, they're going to open source this stuff in a way that once it's released, you know, it just can't be controlled and hidden. Uh, you'd have to hear the full interview to kind of catch the weight of what he was saying, but he was basically saying in the next several months, there's going to be news that comes out. Um, basically that some of the technology, again, that Tesla was tapping into some of the technology that this guy down in Florida at Coral Castle, uh, Edward Leedskinen, Leedskinen, I think his name was that, um, that's kind of a modern day example of somebody who might've tapped into some ancient technology. He built this castle made of these multi-ton blocks, Yes, small little guy. No one ever knew how he did it because he would build at night and, and his neighbors would hear him whistling while he built. And then there some photos emerged of a contraption he had that had magnets. And so, and when he was asked, how did you do this without cranes and dump trucks he said he had learned uh some of the secrets of how the great pyramids were built wow. uh, so that's kind of a cool another modern day um example and again hey maybe in our time we're going to hear even more breakthrough yeah now the scary thing to me would be if if we're going to relearn this ancient tech you mentioned something that it seems like it was pre-flood knowledge. Now, are we rediscovering ancient tech or are we making deals with uh, ancient entities that are willing to share with us this technology? Um, I know the watchers, you know, they're, they're shackled and bound, but I'm sure that there are uh, beings out there that would still be willing to, to share and disclose some of this information, right? Wow, that's a great, uh, great thought there and great question. And uh, yeah, I mean, what are the implications of this for sure? Yeah, We really don't know. And yeah, can we trust what we're being told? Um, no, I, I wouldn't say we can trust it. Um, but, and who knows, mainstream wise, we seem to have lost a lot of this technology, but how much of this does the elite actually have at their fingertips right. um, behind closed doors? I don't know. Wow. Wow. Well, um, I, with this ancient tech and, and then we'll, we can move forward, but I was trying to, you know, I was trying to absorb everything that you were going over in your videos and stuff. And uh, you had mentioned maybe there was some intense heat that could have been used. I've heard people talk about before, that it looked like stone was melted. Um, I don't know how they could acquire such heat to, to melt stone. And if they did, I guess they would have to have molds or something to put the stone in. Um, none of those explanations seem to work for me. But then again, I'm not an architect or a geologist or anything <laughs> like that. You know, it just, it's over, over my head. Um, and with these stones, these walls, like that one, you showed a rock that had 11 sides and it was yeah. right in the middle of this wall. Um, so close, you can't get a human hair in between them, right? Like you can't slide a piece of paper in there. Right. Um, are these, 
does the other side of the stone look the same as the front side? Are they like, well, I guess what I'm asking is, is that just one big stone and there's score and lines in it to look like blocks? Or are they really blocks like this? Yeah. I'm, no, I'm looking for a cheater. You know what I mean? Great question. No, I get this question a lot, actually. Um, especially like the, again, some of these Peruvian walls. Um, like at Sacsayhuaman or Ajante Tambo or Machu Picchu, you know, I'll post a lot of these pictures from my travels or videos, and people will say, um, uh, they'll flat out say, "Well, that's you know, it's not individual stones. That's just like like you said, it's an ancient cement geopolymer, and there's just lines in it that make it look like a wall." I can assure you, having been there, right. Up close, these are individual stones that are thick and go, you know, several feet back. Wow. They're not just a, um, what would you call it, a facade on the front. These are individual stones. Um, now, some of the um, some of the structures in Mexico, um, you might see that, like at Chichen Itza, I've been there. That's not nearly as old, and I wouldn't say it's truly megalithic. The the uh, Maya builders, I do believe, had some knowledge of some of this technology we're talking about, um, but they didn't have the complete knowledge because their stuff is quite inferior to what you're going to see in Egypt and Peru. And that's why when you look at their construction, a lot of it does have a facade. There'll be, there'll be decent-sized blocks, not multi-ton. Right. that are um, finished. And then inside, if you see the structure, it's more corroded and just filler. But yeah, in Egypt, I mean, I, there's so many examples I could give you in Egypt and Peru where you'll see, for example, a precision drill hole. And I'm not talking a small drill. I'm talking a massive, ancient, what looks like a core drill wow. was 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 driven straight through a stone so you can see all the way through it right yeah. and you can see that this um and some of them are on the edge so you can see that this is a complete stone that's massive and i guess with the geo palmer theory i'm not saying that it's um it's not a decent theory i think there's something to that where the ancients might have used some kind of molds yeah. but the geo palmer theory i don't think can be explained for everything because it doesn't still explain how they lifted a hundred ton block, 300 feet in the air. Right. And it doesn't explain these precision laser or saw like cuts in drill holes that you see all over Giza. I mean, it was, that was uh, one of the exciting surprises when I was there last time was just all the different saw cuts you're seeing all over. Uh, clear evidence of these uh, ancient, whether you want to call them machines or just technology they had. Um, some people theorize that when it comes to your question of melting stone, uh, I was talking with Timothy Alberino recently about this. Uh, I'm trying to remember the word he used. I think it was a uh, hyperbolic lens uh, mirror. Um, there's some evidence out there that the ancients were using, they constructed these mirrors and they would focus it at the sun because there's some videos you can find of people doing this today in melting stone. 
So um, some kind of hyperbolic, if that's the right word, or something bollock um, mirrors um, to, again, funnel the heat of the sun to melt stone. But something I'll point out to also answer your question is um, I like to say one of the smoking guns for me of lost ancient technology is the Aswan quarry in Egypt. Let me set this up for listeners. Um, okay, again, geology is so much a part of this. Um, there's a, there's something people can Google called the Mohs scale of hardness. I think it's M-O-H-S, Mohs scale of hardness. This is the standard in geology to measure the hardness of stone. It goes from one to 10. So like diamond is going to be a 10. That's your hardest stone, right? Well, all of this granite that is in the inside the Great Pyramid or in this Aswan quarry, all this rose granite is a seven or eight on the Mohs scale. So it's way up there as far as hard. It's got a bunch of quartz in it. Well, the dynastic Egyptians, these guys that get the credit for building all this stuff, the problem is if you look at the archaeological record, they had copper and uh, copper tools and maybe some iron tools. Well, guess what? Those rank three to four on the Mohs scale. So how are they fashioning harder material with softer tools? And then how are they doing it with almost laser-like precision? Right. That's, you know, in our modern day, that would be like me taking a plastic um, knife I got at McDonald's and trying to go cut a log, right. <laughs> a, a wooden yeah. log, right? Yeah, that's a good example. And Just how to kind of give... Yeah, how many of those tools would they have to have? Because they would be going through blade after blade after blade just to make a, a quarter right. inch impression. Now, if, if they wanted to literally waste, you know, let's say 10 years of their life with blunt force, just like you said, tool after tool, eventually you could make dance, right? And you can make a corroded looking cut maybe, but you're not going to do the precision cuts and so this as one quarry here's the crazy thing all of the granite rose granite it's this rose pink color that you see in giza at the great pyramid it all came from aswan which is 11 hours away by car aswan is the only place in egypt where this stone exists yeah so you not only have the problem of how did they move it lift it shape it cut it how did they move it 11 hours right and, you know, there's people that are always going to say, well, they did it easy. They put them on boats on the Nile. Well, okay, then you have to answer the question, how does a 1,000-ton piece of granite not sink their little wooden boats? Right. And how did they get it on the boat and off the boat? Right. You know, and so there's all kinds of theories like possible levitation trains, um, again, using the water of the Nile. Right. And, um, but again, back to Aswan. So, again, the scale of Egypt, Egypt's a huge country. 11 hours away by car is Aswan, where this quarry is that they cut all this granite out. So, you get there. And if you Google Aswan, you might see a, a picture of the, it's called the unfinished obelisk. It's the biggest obelisk in the world laying on its back inside this quarry. It was never finished. This thing, weighs about uh, at least 1200 tons. Wow. And the mainstream theory says, oh, well, it just, it got a crack in it 
And, uh, you know, the, the dynastic Egyptians just figured they'd leave it there. Well, problem. You get to this unfinished obelisk, and if you walk around it and, you know, down below it, guess what you see? Again, remember what I said about the Mohs scale in, yeah. in granite's a seven to eight, and copper and iron are three and four. If you look, this thing has one meter scoop marks all the way around it. Okay. One meter scoop marks all the way around it. The ancients had some kind of tool. They were scooping into the granite like butter. Yeah. And if you can see my hand, they were going like that and then up. So there's these scoop marks that go down and they scoop out underneath this obelisk. I'm not probably doing it justice if you're just listening to this. Um, and if you look at the walls going up where this unfinished obelisk is, in every scoop mark, there's a dark reddish brown line that goes up the wall. And uh, Muhammad Ibrahim says this is a sign of excessive heat. And so, uh, again, he believes this is proof of the ultrasonic cutting tool that the ancients were using that was like some kind of, I don't want to say the word crane, but it was some tool that could go down, scoop out, and they were doing it with ease. Even on the top of the unfinished obelisk, you see these scoop marks. Just like they were, uh, like if you were scooping ice cream out of a big hard container with a one of those hot spoons. Yeah. Exactly what it was like. Wow. And, okay. The, yeah, there's no way for us to know that, for us to understand how they're doing that. Unless you know, we get something revealed to us in the next few months. That So when you go to these places, do you walk away with more questions than you walk in with? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Endless questions. Um, I should say one of my biggest, oh man, this was the coolest surprise. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Maybe you can edit out that part. One of the coolest surprises I had on this last Egypt trip, because I went there in 2008 and I had no idea what I was seeing based on what I know now. Right. Right. So it was so cool going with my megalithic goggles on, as I like to say. And I knew going into Egypt on this last tour that, you know, the Great Pyramids were not tombs. Um, but I assumed wrongly that most of the the temples and statues were dynastic Egyptian. And man, did I have a surprise. And let me share this with you because this was just one of the most exciting things. Yeah. There's a site, and there's many sites like this, but one um I'll give for an example, it's called the Ramazeum. This is in uh, South Egypt in the Luxor area. Massive temple. It's dedicated to uh Ramses II of the 19th dynasty. He ruled about uh, 1300 BC. And they call this site the Ramazeum because the name of Ramses was found at the site, right? Remember the word though, keyword repurposed. Right. So, so you go to this site or if you look at a drone's eye view of it, you're going to just see, you know, massive temple, massive columns, statues everywhere. And it all looks great, but 90% of it would be dynastic Egyptian. 
meaning that this was built by these guys from 3000 BC. You look at the, the columns, they're massive, but they're all made in sections. That's the best they could do, right? Yeah. And they're made from sandstone, which is a lot softer than granite. Right. You see their sandstone uh, statues. They're made in sections, like maybe five or six different sections. It's the best they could do. They're cool looking, but it's not made from one complete thing. Then you go around the corner and you see the remnants of a 1,000 ton statue. If you're like me and you like to go camping, hiking, hunting, um, just be prepared in general, then uh, I recommend you check out Squatch Survival Gear. Their packs are 100% made in America. Each component on the packs are American made. It's a veteran owned company out of Texas. Um, it's my buddy Chris. He started this out of personal experience. Um, in his military service, he, he fashioned these packs, you know, off of packs that he used that he had to modify to make them something that, uh, it's more, more convenient, easier to carry less of a load on your body and the, let the pack do the work. They're amazing. I own two. I have the, uh, the rock ape and the mothman pack. I love them. They're the best bags I've ever had in my life. These bags are bomb-proof. I, I, I've never seen anything like it. Plus, they're comfortable. When I have them on, I can carry around. I can hike with 25, 30 pounds, and it, it doesn't strain my body. The pack does the work. Um, you have to see them for yourself. So go to SquatchSurvivalGear.com to check them out. If you decide to, to purchase one of these bags, use my promo code. It's 23BUMP this year. Okay? It's 23-B-U-M-P. Use that promo code and it'll save you 15% site-wide. These, these are packs of all sizes. You know, if you want something, you know, small everyday carry, or if you want some kind of a go bag, like a, I'm not coming home bag, he's got them. Check them out, SquatchSurvivalGear.com, promo code 23BUMP. Then you go around the corner and you see the remnants of a 1,000 ton statue. Now this thing is severely damaged. You can only kind of see the head and the chest and torso. When it was complete, it was 2,000 tons. Here's the crazy part. This thing is fashioned from one piece of rose granite and it has muscle tone. One does not is not the same as the other. No, right? Not yeah. This is what I would say is a megalithic statue. And it was built by the megalithic builders, just like the Sphinx, which I can talk about. And I actually believe it's representing the megalithic builders. Now, here's where this gets crazy. Uh, you might say these were the original, original ancient Egyptians. Okay. Yeah. So they had the, this look. And the dynastic Egyptians were still emulating this look, okay? And even naming their children after these titans. And so the the crazy thing about the statue is you go to the base of it. So it's broken off its base. It's fallen. But you go to this base, and uh, I can send you pictures of this if you want to 
post this somewhere to give people listeners a uh, idea of what I'm talking about. You see this 1000 ton statue with muscle tone in its uh, body in different places in these precision intricate, like lines on its headdress again, ultrasonic cutting type tool. Right. But then you see what people would say, these hieroglyphs at the base. Well, I believe these are, these aren't hieroglyphs. This is part of the original language of these megalithic builders. These, I would call, these are called, I mean, these are 3D precision, deep embedded symbols into rose granite, cut with like a laser. Again, dynastics, they had copper and iron tools. Right. Their statues over here are made in pieces, and that's just in sandstone, which is way softer. This is granite, and it's got laser symbols in it. And um, Muhammad read to us what it says. And it said, um, the powerful system of the sun, chosen by the sun, son of the sun, Ramses. What? Okay, so I theorize this is the original Ramses. Or this is depicting the original Ramses. Right. Possibly a golden age ruler. Could, it could have been some type of hybrid giant. We don't know for sure. Um, but... Then the dynastic Ramses came around in uh, 1300 BC, tagged the site, yeah. right, and claimed it all as his. Yeah. And so that to me was the greatest surprise and revelation I had. And hopefully your listeners don't think I'm too crazy, but are at least open to some of these ideas. Oh, yeah. Trust me. My listeners are very much open to these ideas. Um pretty much everybody that listens to this show probably listens to uh like blurry creatures or something like that um at least the vast majority oh uh, wow yeah so these these original builders uh i see similarities in egypt you know talking about these pyramids were already there just like in my area i live in west virginia um we have the mound builders the hopewell there's a mound not two, three miles from my house. Um, and then there's several other mounds once you get 40 or 50 miles out. Um, the Native Americans are given credit for these mounds, but they are way older than that. Um, they were already here. And I've heard reports where they've run a you know like a bore scope or they've flattened the mounds for farming or whatever and they find these giants you know these seven or eight foot skeletons surrounded by normal sized people and some kind of ceremonial burial um so my question is do you think that these are giants all around the world making these structures does that go into it Great question. Um, I definitely, based on my research, believe um, ancient giants did exist. Uh, whether that's obviously the Bible is chock full of talking about ancient giants. We've got extra biblical sources like Josephus, the historian who lived about, around the time of Christ and wrote some important books like the Antiquities of the Jews, 
Uh, he talks uh, about giants in several places. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically, in one of his quotes I've got, talks about that they were still on display in his day, in the museums of his day, and that they were uh, surprising to the sight and known as terrible to the hearing. Hmm. Um, so we've got that. We've got, uh, when it, especially North America. I mean, we've got newspaper articles from every major uh, newspaper. I'm talking like the Scientific American, the New York Times, up into the early 1900s, docu documenting, sometimes on their front page, giant discoveries. I mean, I've really, I've documented a lot of them. Actually, I've got a couple here. And anybody can go to the Library of Congress um, online and search for these keywords, and you'll eventually find these articles with the original uh, newspapers. But here's a couple I've found. Uh, this is an 1871 New York Times report, and it's about an eight-foot skeletons with filed teeth found in Virginia Cave. Wow. 1885 New York Times report, eight-foot skeletons found in underground vault. And then I love this one, 1916 New York Times report, seven-foot plus so there was some seven some uh taller seven foot horned horned skeletons found in pennsylvania mound wow so there's definitely a connection in north america with the mounds i do believe these predated the native americans and uh, the mound building culture was known back in the day in the 1800s as uh, being this ancient culture, I mean, we even have Abraham Lincoln on record talking about that. Have you heard of his quote? Yes, yes. Yeah. Like, uh, look at Niagara, right? Niagara Falls. Yeah, he he did a visit to Niagara Falls, and he's, um, and he wrote in a journal that basically, um, the eyes of that species. I think it goes the eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Wow. And so you've got Buffalo Bill Cody, another kind of famous, you know, American back then. Yeah. He, uh, if, if people can search this, I think it's on megalithicmarvels.com even. If you go there and put in any keywords, you'll find a lot of this stuff that I've written articles on. But Buffalo Bill Cody, in one of his autobiographies, has an account of um, when he was in the Sand Hills with the Pawnee Indians, they brought him in one night, um, this massive bone, um, which they said the surgeon of his expedition said was a thigh bone of a human being. And the Indians claimed that it was um, a person belonging to a race of people that predated them, basically. And so you got accounts like that. And then um, you've got, you know, some eyewitness accounts. I, I love to tell the Lovelock cave story. I've been to that cave in Nevada a couple times. That to me is one of the greatest. You, would you mind sharing it? Yeah. Yeah. It kind of, it kind of brings it all together. So uh, yeah. let me uh, set this up. So out in um, Nevada, probably uh, maybe a couple hours Northeast of Reno is a, um, a little town called Lovelock Cave. And once you get into the town, well, let me set this up. 
So in that area of Nevada, the is where the Paiute Indians uh, have lived for generations. And the Paiutes have an ancient oral tradition that talks about how they went to war in, in, ancient, in the ancient past against a ferocious enemy known as the Sitika. Well, that means red-haired. Um, their legend states that after years of blood-weary battles, the Paiutes... Um, finally unified with other tribes to to, to uh, destroy this the Sitika. And they pushed them into this large cave, set it ablaze with fire, and then uh, shot any would-be escaping giants with uh, arrows. Wow. So there was that oral tradition for, you know, ever. And then um, it took on new life there. Um, in the 1800, late 1800s, the chief of the uh, Paiutes, his daughter wrote a book. Her name's Sarah Winnemucca, and it's um, it was the first known autobiography by Native American woman. It's called Life Among the Paiutes. And in the book, she writes about the red-haired people eaters that her tribe exterminated and um, how she has a dress. She had a dress passed down from generation to generation trimmed with the red hair wow so that kind of took on you know a new life first it was an oral tradition now you've got you know one of their own writing about this and saying she's got a dress trimmed with it well then in about 1911 uh a bunch of guano miners that's guys digging in caves for bat fertilizer right and um they were in this giant cave and what's come to now be known as Lovelock Cave. And they start to discover countless artifacts, arrow shafts, um, and what they said, giant giant skeletons and skulls. Well, that triggered the next year, uh, archaeologists from the University of California came out and started excavating this cave. And I've, I found their uh, field guide their book that they wrote about this cave. And again, these are legit archaeologists uh, from the University of, of Berkeley. Of, of course, this is way before things got really politicized and politically correct. Right. Um, but these guys talk about how they, f they found that there was people at least from 4,000 BC in this cave. Um, they found over 10,000 artifacts. They found this donut shaped notched stone calendar elaborate duck decoys which are on display to the smithsonian now they found guess what giant fragments of weapons like we're talking giant weapons and um they found this giant pestle which the you know like the native americans used pestles to crush food on rocks yeah. well normally a pestle is this big right. they found one that's like two uh, three feet long two feet long what <laughs> yeah and so all these anomalous things, but even better, these guys in their own book corroborate the legend. And they say that um, uh, they, they validate the oral tradition and they say that the testimony of the miners about the giants, um, they believe to be true. And that, um, and then when you look at the pictures in the, in the archaeologist's book, they found, they discovered a humanoid. I call it that. It looks like one of the Paracas skulls in Peru. It's got a humanoid-looking skull. 
Yeah. And it's smallish. And I've got pictures of this again on megalithicmarvels.com. You can search Lovelock and you'll find my series. So they found this humanoid and then they found um they found at least a six foot six skeleton in this cave that they said had a basically massive bone structure and it had red hair of course and um but the the archaeologists go on to say that the best stuff was probably taken the best and biggest skulls were probably taken by the miners and they also make a note in their book about how um basically not everything we found has been included here and it's almost like they're alluding to political correctness. Yeah. Um, but if that's not cool enough, I've found a bunch of newspaper articles from the early 1900s from Lovelock documenting seven to 10 foot tall giant skeletons that were discovered, not just in the cave, but in the humble dry lake bed that oh, dried wow. up. And um, yeah, people found these seven to 10 foot giant skeletons. And so, when I went to the cave, the cool thing is this thing definitely feels prehistoric. You go inside, it's a massive cave in the middle of nowhere. It feels like an alien landscape. You get in the cave and guess what the first thing you notice is the entire ceiling inside is charred black. This, this whole thing was set ablaze. Okay, so kind of a little clue there. Um, of course, all the signage. It's almost like they don't want you to find it. The thing is so remote and so far out. But once you get there, there's a little plaque. And it just says, you know, that Native Americans lived here. And that's it. Yeah. Um, but then I should say, you got the Humboldt Museum witnesses and photographs. So I've found photos of people that were, there's a Humboldt Museum. It's another town, maybe an hour away from Lovelock. And they've got a, whole display related to Lovelock cave and Nevada is still kind of the wild west. Right. And so you're going to see more than you'd see in some, you know, West coast museum. So up until the early two thousands, you could go there. And if you asked, they'd take you in the back room and show you what they say are some of these Lovelock skulls. And somebody took a photograph of this. Uh, I think like in 2003, and I've got it on my website, you see four skulls, you know, which all look ancient, but one doesn't look like the others. The one in the middle dwarfs the other three. And when you zoom in, it almost looks like it's got a double row of teeth on the top. Of course. And so this is a robust skull. So we've got a photograph and we've got these museum uh, witnesses that took this and then I found this was cool. Uh, the actual um, director of this museum, her name's Barbara Powell. She confirmed that the four ancient skulls uh, unearthed at Lovelock cave are in fact in possession and um, that they can't put them on display because quote, the state does not recognize their legitimacy. What? Yep. So you've got the, the very, Museum director saying that about the skulls. So to me, I love that story because you've got legends, you've got a cave, you've got old newspaper articles, you've got photographs, and you've got pretty well-to-do people corroborating 
this legend. And so I'll leave it up to people to decide, but that made me a believer. Oh man. Yeah. That's fantastic. You, I had heard the story of the Lovelock case, but I did not know all of this about Humboldt and the, that, and you opened my eyes to a lot more. And I know uh, we're, we're right at an hour and you got to hop off here soon, but let me ask you just one question and uh, hopefully I can get you back on here one day down the road to, to get into all this other stuff we didn't even get to touch on. But uh, in your opinion, your expert opinion, because I still, <laughs> I'm telling you, you did not disappoint, man. Uh, why the cover-up? Does it is it because it proves the existence um, uh, of the biblical narrative that you know that Christianity and you know the Bible stories are real? Is that the whole purpose of the cover up, or or what do you think it is? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think it's multi layered though. Um, I can't remember who said it, but I love this quote. It always stuck with me: "Those who control the past control the future." Right. And so if um, if the key holders and the gatekeepers can get us from looking too far into the past, then we're not going to think about ancient technology and how was this built and why can't we build this today and what was lost and why was it lost? Right. So um, that's part of the reason. Um, not that I agree with everything Graham Hancock says, but his new Netflix series has been amazing because it's red pilled a ton of people who would normally write all this stuff off. Uh, but because it's an official Netflix series, right. Oh, maybe there's something to this and they watch it. And, and uh, the fact that Graham Hancock believes that there was an ancient worldwide cataclysm um, I think is part of the reason he's so under fire. They don't want us talking about an ancient worldwide cataclysm, right? Because right. then it's going to get us to want to know what well what happened, what was the Earth like before that cataclysm? And so I think that's a part of it. And then people have just made, you know, a living and careers off saying it was one way. You know, saying that, I mean, if you just if you Google ancient history timeline, you're going to see. Wikipedia, of course, pop up number one, and you're going to see their ancient history timeline that goes to like, it ends at like 3200 BC. I mean, how insane is that? Right. It's like, there's nothing else to see here. Right. <laughs> and so the mainstream wants us to believe that the further we look back, the more archaic it was, yeah. the uh, more inferior it was, but the opposite couldn't be more true. Right. Actually, the more technologically advanced they were. And so why, what was going on? And so, yes, I think right now, especially in the West Darwinism is the prevailing paradigm. And so it's the status quo for archeology, span anthropology. So any evidence that conflicts with that, it's forbidden. Yeah. And we see that with the NAGPRA law, NAGPRA stands for Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It was passed yeah. in 1990. So in a nutshell, any specimen, any skull, anything found, they just can say, because of this law, this is Native American. It needs to be given back to them 
and buried. Yeah. Never to be seen again. And I that's know. why you don't see an elongated skull on display anywhere. But that's why like Peru's the wild west still. You can go to Peru and see these elongated skulls. To me is one of the smoking guns of uh these Nephilim hybrids that existed. The Paracas skulls are natural. They have they have about 30% more cranial volume than we do. Cradle headboarding can't produce more cranial mass. No, no, it would, Plus, it would. They have no suture lines uh, or uh, they're missing sagittal sutures. That's genetic. Yeah. Um, the foreman magnum, that's where our neck attaches to our, our heads. And on our skulls, if you look at an x-ray, it's right in the middle of our head. On these naturally elongated skulls, it's completely to the back of the skull. That's right. genetic. Yeah. Plus, just in the last ten, uh, five years, really, incredible discoveries of massive elongated skulls born on newborn uh, of newborns. Wow. Um, so right there, there's no way this was cradle headboarded. It was just born out of the womb with a massive skull. And no, this isn't some disease. This was the ruling class of this Paracas culture who, if you kind of follow the crumbs, they migrated from the Black Sea region of Crimea. The point is, these weren't giants, but they were hybrids that had these genetic anomalies. Yeah. I think they were descendant from the, uh, you know, what we might say are the Nephilim uh, that we read about in, in Scripture. Um, so yes, I believe there's a cover up, and that's why um, you're not going to read about the mound builders or the culture in any mainstream history books. You're not going to see elongated skulls on display, even though they've been found in North America. Uh, L.A. Marzulli uh, discovered an elongated skull in the pictures of the Catalina Island Museum. Um, that's an incredible story. A bunch of giant skeletons were discovered there. And um, there's a huge cover-up with that Catalina Island story. But yeah, he found a photo of an elongated skull. And I, I know of others too. So again, we've got elongated skulls in North America found. and um, But again, the cover-up is that could expose the Darwinian paradigm. Yes. And... <laughs> You got I I ask myself, you know, because when you think of evolution and and how they say, well, these Neanderthals are proof of the missing link. Well, these Neanderthals clearly aren't just apes, and they're clearly not human. It's actually the reverse. This is probably Nephilim hybrids yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And again, that's why they've got to fit this somehow into this Darwinian paradigm. So I guess that's my answer for the cover-up. Um, I hope that it did enough. Oh man, that was that was perfect. And you know, as, as you're talking about these elongated skulls and how it's clearly not headboarding, doesn't anybody wonder why they were doing headboarding, like? The the whole purpose of that was to pay homage and to look like this royal class, right? You nailed it. They were they were emulating the natural 
elongated skulls. Yes. And so it's kind of like repurposing in Egypt with the dynastics versus the megalithic. Well, the same is with Paracas. There are some uh, cradle headboarded skulls. Again, those are the guys copying the originals. And so, um, but people will just blanket. That's one of my biggest frustrations on this topic is you just, oh, no, those are just cradle headboarded. No, if you look at all the evidence, there's no way you could say that. Yeah. Uh, another cool thing about the, uh, I, I call them the natural elongated skulls of Paracas. They have these tiny bones on the back sides of their skulls that we don't have. And these tiny bones are called Inca bones. And they're called Inca bones because when you study the Inca culture who came after the Paracas in Peru, the Royal Inca, many of them had elongated skulls and they had these little bones. Really? So I theorize that the, the Royal Inca came from the Paracas. They just moved north into Cusco. Um, but they and these Paracas have these tiny little bones. Again, genetics is the reason here. Yeah. Um, you can't add these. You can't take them away. You just have them. And so that's another genetic anomaly. These tiny Inca bones that we don't have in their skulls. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 Uh, if you will come back on again sometime, um, I would love to just spend the hour on these skulls. Yeah, man. That's a, that's a hot topic. And that's something that, you know, I, I know you're well versed in and you can answer a lot of stuff for people that are, that are listening that just are just now hearing about this kind of stuff. Um, Derek Olson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I know most people probably already know where to find your content, but could you just go ahead and lay it out there where they can find you at and all the work you've done? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, thanks again for having me on. This has been fun. And, um, yeah, people can find me, um, on Instagram. That's kind of probably where I have the most fun, uh, megalithic marvels. If you're on Instagram, uh, just follow me and, uh, you're going to see a lot of these pictures that we've been talking about. And, um, you're going to see, I make a lot of reels from my travels, uh, whether it's Egypt or um, I'll just piece stuff together. Um, I made a real video the other day, uh, not real, like R-E-E-L. That's what Instagram calls them. And um, it was about this structure, or I should say this possible statue in Italy. Just when I think I've seen it all, somebody sends me something. And so I've got this pinned on my Instagram. You can go watch it. But it is this, what I believe is an ancient golden age statue of an elephant that is standing 16 feet tall right there in this little town in Italy. It's so it's like the Sphinx. It's severely weathered, but you can clearly see the ears, the trunk, the tusks. Oh, wow. And um, when you kind of study Atlantis, they really in the golden age, they almost deified elephants. And so this is like a, again, a zoomorphic, statue hidden in plain sight it was mind-blowing to see and, and get these photographs and i loved making a video so follow me for kind of stuff like that and then go to uh my blog megalithicmarvels.com a lot of articles there like the lovelock stuff and kind of investigative series i've me and others have wrote over the years um and if anyone's interested in coming to uh egypt with me this may 
you can go to megalithicmarvels.com forward slash tours and read all about it. And uh, we got a promotional there. You can get some money off. So it's going to be a lot of fun. That's kind of where to find me. Oh, wow. Yeah. What a, what a blast that will be. Uh, yeah. So I'll put links to all that in the show notes too. That way uh, make it a little bit easier. But Derek, thank you so much for coming on. God bless you. Uh, God bless everything you're doing, man. Uh, uh, I love it. I love it. And if you would do me the honors, I'd love to bring you back on before long. Hey, man, thanks for having me. It was an honor. And I hope uh, your listeners enjoyed what we talked about. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's plan that for next year. Uh, we're, next year's almost here. Come back and talk <laughs> about skulls. And uh, hey, man, best to you. Hey, thank you. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. That's it for this week, guys. Thanks for listening. If you want more content, if you want to submit your own story to be on the show, if you want to listen to past episodes, or if you want to donate to the show, you can do all of that through thebumppodcast.com. So just go there, uh, explore the website, check it all out. If you want to sign up to be a member, it's super cheap. It's just $1.75 a week. You can cancel at any time. Get in on uh, all the, the new, latest, and greatest stuff we have going on. All right, so again, thanks for listening. I love you. God bless.
personally ready to submit your life to God and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The book of Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says it really simply that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. To be born again, to start a new life as a child of God, to join God's army, to rise up against the evil forces that you know are all around you. You don't have to do it alone. I love you. Jesus loves you. And may God bless you.